We're going to be in the book of Matthew this morning. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. So one small verse towards the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, uh, but one that is packed full of wealth for us today. Um, A lot for us to learn in this one little word from Jesus. Again, Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. If you didn't bring your Bible with you, that scripture will be on the screen behind me when we get to that point. There's probably also a black pew Bible somewhere in your vicinity if you want to pick up and read out of that. First of all, let me say we're glad to be back. Uh, We had an awesome time over the last week and a half uh, in Israel. Uh, It was really a surreal experience uh, to walk in that area, places that we've seen pictures of, uh, places that we have read about in Scripture for all of our lives, uh, to actually set foot uh, in those places was incredible, something that I would encourage every believer to do. Um, you go knowing that in a lot of the cases, the locations where this and this happened are our guesses by people who came in hundreds of years later. Uh, but even with that being the reality, uh, we know that Jesus walked that soil. We know especially uh, where the temple was and things like that, that Jesus was in that area. Um, and perhaps the most poignant poignant time where that was clear to me that Jesus was here. I was early on in our trip when we were on a boat sitting in the middle of the Lake of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee. It's really a lake, but uh, sitting in the Sea of Galilee and and singing a song together with our group after they had cut the motor off in a wooden boat, um, knowing that Jesus had literally walked on these waters that I could see around me because it's not a giant body of water. You can, it's like a big lake in Texas. You can pretty much see all the shore all the way around you. Um, yeah, and God spoke to me during that time uh, in a way that uh, was different. Not that it's better than when, when we're here, the same Holy Spirit. Y'all talked about the Holy Spirit last week. Adrian did a great job. I'm glad that he filled in and, and did a, an excellent job preaching on that. The same Holy Spirit that was there is here. God is full, full in his presence, uh, but there was just a different way of experiencing it. Uh, so I'll stop with the commercial. Um, maybe someday uh, our group, uh, our church, or, or churches in town, maybe just something we're thinking about, dreaming about, uh, might plan a trip in that direction. So keep your ears open and let me know if that's something you would be interested in, uh, in making that trip with a, a group from our church or our community. Between that and, and just being uh, out uh, a week before that, time has kind of passed quickly at the beginning of this year for me. It's already February. Um, Tom, I guess this is just going to keep happening, right? Those of you who are over 36, you could probably testify to the fact that uh, the older you get, the quicker time passes. Uh, And so I'm not expecting it to slow down anytime soon, but I can't stop marveling at how quickly it does pass, uh, how suddenly we're here. February the 2nd, already, the Super Bowl is already being played. Uh, It just seems like the Dallas Cowboys got eliminated yesterday, doesn't it? Um, Which is every year. Anyway, um, so we're here, it's February already. Uh, You know what that means. That means that Valentine's is right around the corner. Uh, You need to be picking out that perfect gift uh, for that someone in your life. Uh, Like I've told you all before, I kind of have the double whammy in February. Cheryl's birthday is on the 11th. Um, which means I need to come up with two really good ideas. If anybody has any pointers, uh, any, any things uh, you think might be a good gift, um, I've made the mistake in the past of combining them. I will not make that mistake again um, because I'm afraid something else might be uncombined, if you know what I mean, uh, torn asunder. Uh, if, if I do that uh, again, it was a cookie bouquet, right? That was the, come on, as, as a guy, 
you think about, like, if you can combine things, that it's better. So women like flowers, women like sweets. Cookie bouquet, perfect, right? In the middle, that should work. There's word out to my brother. Um, it didn't work. Don't do it. I ate all the cookies. Uh, it wasn't a good idea. Uh, I've told you that before. Uh, that's that's going to be a lesson someday when Corbin and Cannon are dating or getting married. I'm going to tell them, stay away from the cookie bouquet. It's just a good idea. But anyway, that's right around the corner. I can remember the first Valentine's gift that I remember giving. Uh, not like a car to classmates or something to my parents, but one that I remember giving to a girl. It was when I was in fifth grade. Uh, and me and this girl in fifth grade had just started dating, which means, you know what that means in fifth grade, right? You stop talking to each other completely. Uh, you avoid each other at all costs. Uh, and you tell someone, I have a girlfriend or I have a boyfriend. That's kind of the situation. Um, and Valentine's Day was coming up. And if my school was like your school, uh, everybody uh, had like a little thing. It was a box or, or maybe a, made out of poster board, some kind of heart-shaped thing that you were supposed to stick Valentine's cards in and everybody was supposed to get everybody something. I thought I needed to add something extra to hers. And so I made a mixtape, like a legit mixtape. I'm not talking about downloading from Napster and putting it on a CD. I'm talking about back in the days when it was a cassette tape. I went home, I found a cassette tape, I erased it. I don't remember what was on it. It probably had like Kenny Loggins or something on it. I don't know, uh, but Kenny Loggins. Y'all know who that is? Come on. All right, here we go. So uh, um, found that, erased it, put it in, and did the hard work, and this is what you had to do in the early 90s if you wanted to make a mixtape, did the hard work of listening to the radio nonstop until I knew a song was about to come that would be perfect to put on. I don't remember what songs were there, but I remember wanting desperately for um, I Will Always Love You by Whitney Houston to come on. You know that song that I'm talking about, right? This was right around the time that The Bodyguard was out, that movie uh, that made that song famous again. Uh, I just assumed that Whitney Houston had sung it, that she wrote it. Um, but I was listening to a country station. And so when that song did come on, it wasn't Whitney Houston. It was who? Tell me loud and proud country music. That was Dolly Parton. That heck, heck yeah, it was Dolly Parton. Uh, and so I recorded Dolly Parton. We're so far away from Abilene, which was the local country station next to us, the closest one we could listen to, that it was staticky. But I didn't care. I recorded the song, and I put it in her little box, and we never spoke to each other again, just like we hadn't been doing already. That was my first Valentine's offering. And it started a long tradition in my life, of especially in romantic relationships, of getting someone something that I knew I would like. Now, I'm not saying... I would like, I could only, I, I will always love you by Dolly Parton for the rest of my life. But I am saying that one thing that has always spoken to me is music. You can ask Cheryl, you can ask anybody else in my life today. Anytime I hear a new song with like really good lyrics, I'll put that thing on repeat in the car and listen to it over and over again. I enjoy the musical quality to it, but when there's like a, a lyrical poignancy in a song it, that just speaks to me, I'll share it with people, I'll text people about it. Music has always spoken to me, despite not having any real musical ability. I've just enjoyed soaking that in. It's one of the reasons why I love worshiping with a, with a group that not only do we get to sing to God, not only do we have a great musical accompaniment, but we get to see these wonderful lyrics and, and testify that our God is alive, our God is risen, he has beat the grave, and music speaks to me in that way. And I just assumed that it spoke to everybody else in the same way. How do you love others? Do you love others in that, in that same way? Because much of the time, especially early on in relationships, we, we follow Jesus' golden rule, which is what we're going to talk about. We do for others what we would want them to do for us. And that seems like it should be enough, right? To do for others what you would want them to do for you. 
But here's an example of maybe sometimes where we get that wrong. When I have a difficult day, a conflict-filled day, something goes wrong in the family, we're dealing with an issue at church, I like to come home and distract myself with the boys, with television, with supper, with anything other than that event. And speak as little as possible about the events that transpired during the day. Kind of decompress. I'll talk about them, but I want to talk about them later. Right? Some other time. I just want to get away from them in the moment. So it would only make sense, right, if that I would want to do for others as I would want them to do for me. It would only make sense that if Cheryl comes home, having had a hard day, that me loving her would mean telling her to go by herself and just like distract herself and not allow her to speak the events of the day. But here's a, here's a fact about us, and I think generally, not necessarily all the time, but generally true between men and women, uh, men tend to bottle up things more. Women need to, you know, let it out and, and kind of have a, a chance to vent. Uh, and I know that, that that doesn't necessarily remain universally true. There are some men that like to vent. There are some women that shut down. But we're the kind that I like to kind of keep it to myself. She needs to vent and let it out. And so me loving her would mean in that situation doing something different than what I would want done for me. Are you following me? That if we just do for others what we would want them to do for us, we can have a very selfish perspective of what that means and maybe miss the heart of what Jesus is talking about. For instance, on gifts in particular, with Valentine's Day coming up, think back to Christmas, think about birthdays. Um, I'm the kind, you know, I I appreciate gifts. I I would rather go do something, though. I'd rather go do something fun. I'd rather go out. Uh, If I want or need something badly enough, I'll just buy it myself, right? There's probably some of you that have that same mentality. But I know that if I just did something with my boys on Christmas, instead of actually giving them gifts, that it it would hurt them. Right? That they would be, that we, there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth, like the Bible says. They would not be happy with their father. They would not, more importantly and more seriously, they would not feel loved in that moment. Because one way that parents show love to their children around Christmas is by giving them gifts. By having that made available to them. And so that would be another situation where I would show love best by loving not in the way that I feel loved, when did I receive love, but loving in a different way. So we're going to look at this through the lens of the golden rule, of the rule that sums up all teaching, and we're going to look at this golden rule and how we can have a golden misunderstanding regarding this rule. There is no greater ethical command than the golden rule, but we humans can still mess it up, and we're going to talk about how. Matthew 7, 12 is again the passage. Before we read it, let's pray together. Father, we love you. And we thank you for being here with us this morning. God, we thank you that we can sing about you being risen and being present. God, as we got to to hear last week from Andrew, God, your Holy Spirit, you present in us. God, we thank you for being here. And God, we know you are at work in our midst, whether we've noticed it this morning or not. So God, I pray that you would continue in in your good and perfect work whatever you willed before we started. God, that you would remove distraction from us. God, that you would take my flesh out of the way. And Lord, that you would help us to see clearly your word and how we can apply it to our daily lives. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. Jesus speaking to a group of people all together as he delivers the Sermon on the Mount. This is towards the end. So whatever you wish... 
that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. This so-called golden rule serves as an ethical summary. Most immediately, it summarizes, summarizes Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. The best sermon ever delivered. So much of what we think about behavior and how we ought to live in the world, we can take it back to, from a Christian perspective, this Sermon on the Mount. And so Jesus is summing up the sermon in part with this rule. It sums up everything from blessed are the peacemakers uh, at the beginning of the sermon to take the log out of your own eye before removing the speck from your brother's eye first later on in the sermon. And if you would do to others what you would want them to do to you, you would do the things that Jesus commands in the sermon. You would turn the other cheek when someone strikes you on one. You would walk the extra mile when someone asks you to go one with them. You would pray for your enemies. You would give to the needy in secret. You would do those things if you obeyed this command, to love others the way you want to be loved. It sums up that entire Sermon on the Mount. But Jesus takes it a step further. He says that this is the law and prophets. In other words, it sums up all of the Old Testament teaching. The law being the first five books of the Bible. The Pharisees spent much of their time learning and distributing this. This is what they based their life on, being obedient to the laws spoken to Moses from God. Jesus would say all of that is summed up in this command. And then the prophets as well. The prophets uttering their commands, uttering their words from God to people who needed to turn, who needed to turn from their wicked ways and back to God. Much of it had to do with the way that they loved other people. This sums up everything. Every word that God had said can be summed up in this command to love others the way that you want to be loved. At least according to our ethics and the way we act in the world. If you did to others what you would want them to do to you, you would be obedient to the Bible's teaching. The great Jewish rabbi Hillel the Elder once said in a different way that he said this, that which is hateful to you do not do to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah. The rest is explanation. That which is hateful to you, don't do it to somebody else. What you don't want done to you, don't do to anybody else. That's, that's the whole Torah. The rest is explanation. Now that's one way of putting it. And it's thought that Hillel had lived around the time of Jesus, maybe passed away when Jesus was a young boy or a teenager. Some scholars even believe that it's possible that Jesus heard some of Rabbi Hillel's teaching, which would put his restatement of Hillel's law in, in some interesting context that we'll talk about in a minute. Hillel was widely respected in the Jewish world. Uh, the Jewish encyclopedia says that he was the highest authority among the Pharisees and the scribes at the time of his life. And he agrees with or, or, or kind of says this statement even before Jesus does about if you don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you, then you're summing up all of the Torah. Uh, we see Jesus elsewhere talk about how the, the one great command is that we love God above everything else and the second which is like it is that we love our neighbor as ourselves. That too is borrowed from the Old Testament. In Leviticus 19.18, it says that we should love our neighbors as ourselves. In other words, Jesus is saying that we would be obedient to the entire law if we consistently did to others what we would have them do to us. It stands as the crown jewel of ethical teaching in the world, over all time and all places. It is one thing that unites most of the world, and what they can look and see the golden rule and say, yeah, that's a good idea, even if they're not Christian. 
Many of the different world religions have some kind of iteration of this, usually put in the negative, don't do to others what you don't want done to you, as a part of their teaching. Even many atheists and humanists in today's world, again, would look at this teaching and consider it valuable in making the world a better place. Do to others what you want them to do to you. But Jesus, however, delivers the rule in a different sense, not the negative sense like Hillel. The negative sense is the kind of, uh, that, that I might say to, to one of my kids, like, hey, you don't want him hitting you, right? Right? You don't want him to hit you. Okay, so don't hit him. Right? That's the, if you don't want them to do to you, don't do that to them. Whatever you hate being done to you, don't do that to someone else. Uh, that's basically what we would say to our kids in that situation or anybody else. Uh, you know, we use it even on the world politics scan. Hey, you don't want this country to do that to you, to, to shoot a nuclear weapon at you? Okay, so don't do that to them, right? Let's just stay away from doing bad things. Jesus, however, amps it up a little bit and puts it in an active sense, in more of a positive sense, when he says not just don't do to other people what you know will bother you. Instead, he says, do to others as you would have them do to you. Do to others. An active sense. Many often speak of the Old Testament law as being much more difficult to obey than the New Testament law with all of its myriad of rules, all of the different things that had to be done. Just reading Leviticus is hard enough, uh, let alone actually obeying all of the rules written in it. We would look at the Old Testament law and say that this is too burdensome, too intense. But in a way, Jesus kind of intensifies some of the Old Testament law with some of the teachings that he delivers, especially in the Sermon on the Mount. Look at what he says in the Sermon on the Mount elsewhere, in 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew. The Ten Commandments tells us to not commit adultery. Jesus, concerning that same issue, says, don't just not commit it. Like, don't just keep yourself from committing adultery. Don't even think about it. Don't even lust after another woman. The Ten Commandments tells us not to kill. Jesus tells us, if you harbor hatred for your brother in your heart, you might as well have killed him. Now, obviously, it's better not to kill him. Jesus is not saying that. But he's looking at the heart of the matter and making an intensifying an ethical law, an ethical rule, and showing us how it starts in the heart. In a way, making that rule more intense. Now, thank God for grace that we don't have to hold ourselves to a perfect standard. But if we want to pursue Jesus, he is showing us how with this ethical teaching. With his version of the golden rule, Jesus intensifies that teaching. You see, our faith in Jesus compels us not to simply be a people who don't do the wrong thing, but also a people who do the right thing. How many of you grew up thinking faith or church was about not doing certain things, about having a list of certain things from which you abstain? Don't drink, don't chew, don't date girls that do. Anybody else ever heard that one? Right? You stay away from certain activities. Certain things you don't do at all. Certain things you don't do until it's the right time. A, a, a list of don'ts. If you grew up with a faith that was a list of don'ts, you know how oppressive that can be. Oppressive to your spirit. It's hard to feel alive when you've minimized religion to a list of things not to do. Jesus comes up in the midst of this and says to do these things makes it an active faith, not a faith just of resistance of evil, 
but of actually resisting evil with action, moving forward to do for others what you would want them to do for us. But even still, we can get this wrong. And this is kind of a a new insight into this passage that I've seen in my own life, that I've looked at and, and thought about, preached this passage many times. But to see kind of a, we can't even take this golden rule the wrong way and completely misapply it. I made some uh, humorous allusions to that earlier about buying something for someone that you really want for yourself. Like with Valentine's Day coming up, if you, you, you love football, and then they're about to start an XFL team in Dallas. And so the perfect gift for your wife would be to buy season passes, right? Because you enjoy that, and if and I enjoy that, surely she would enjoy that. You know, that kind of thinking. It's, it's the kind of thinking in children when they give you something, right? Or let's, let's debase it even more than children. It's the kind of thinking that I imagine a house cat has when they bring a mouse to you. Right? Here it is. I got it. I know you love it. This is why I'm around. Right? Obviously, this is what I'm supposed to do. Uh, I, I'm, this is amazing. I killed this thing. This is awesome. Here it is for you. This is my sacrifice to you, oh, owner of everything. I'm sure the cat would be more smart aleck about it because cats are smart alecks. Can I get an amen? But that's what I imagine... A cat saying, it would be like a dog digging up a bone and taking it to you. And, and it's the same kind of thing when we give something to someone else that we just know that we like. That's how we can misapply this rule, isn't it? Now, again, that's kind of humorous, those illustrations. But take some, some larger world implications. If, if you were doing a business deal with someone from China or Japan, someone in the Asian world, the way that you do business is going to be different than the way that they do business. In the American world, we grow up with firm handshakes, looking in the eye, being as direct about everything and bold with our desires, where we communicate directly, boldly, get to the point, you know, let's just get this over with, get this signed, still delivered, move as quickly as possible. Where in the, the Asian world, and much of the Asian world, is, it is a much more indirect way of doing things. I read a book recently in which a woman is talking about delivering uh, a speech uh, to, uh, as on, part of, on behalf of her company uh, to a group of, of Chinese businessmen. And when she got to the end of that speech, she stopped and she asked, does anybody have any questions? Anybody have any questions about this? She assumed there would be questions because it was an important thing that she was talking about, an important emphasis in their, uh, in their company, but nobody raised their hand and nobody started talking. And so she just assumed that nobody had any questions and she moved on. Afterwards, one of the higher-ups within this company came to her and said, several other people had questions. Why didn't you let them ask them? And she looked blankly back and said, nobody started talking. Nobody raised their hand. Nobody indicated that they had any questions. And he went on to explain to her that in our culture, when you do that, when you ask if anybody has any questions, all the people who are looking at the ground or at the desk don't have a question. But if anybody in the room makes eye contact with you, they have a question. You need to ask them what their question is. That's the way their culture works. Now, I know what you're thinking. If you do anything in American business world, you're thinking, that's insane, right? I couldn't imagine living in a world with that much indirect communication. We can see it a little bit in some passages in Scripture. If you go back to the Old Testament and you see the ways that they went back and forth, and it's like Abraham dealing with some others, the kind of bargaining that they would do, they would have this weird kind of back and forth, almost like they were doing this dance. And, and you're thinking, can we just lay out the terms, put it on paper and sign it? That's an American 
American mindset. And you're trying to enforce that on other people. Because what we would do, what I would do in that situation is say, my American way is so much better, so much quicker, so much easier. Yeah, a few people might get their feelings hurt, but I don't care because I'm an American and I want to get this thing done, right? Can I get an amen on that one? I want to make sure that we get feet on the floor like we're supposed to. And that's a complete misunderstanding of how people work together. And how the Asian perspective might say, wow, those people are super rude. Don't they know that there's a much kinder and more roundabout way to get to where we both want to be? And actually having that, 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 that thing called empathy in your head where you're thinking about where the other person might be coming from. Because if we're not careful, we can turn the golden rule into a golden misunderstanding. Yes, it's obvious that the main teaching of Jesus in the Bible is to love God and love people. And we often fail at that task still. We know that it is our command to love God and love others. We know that as he parses us out here in Matthew seven twelve, our job is to love others the way that we want to be loved, yet we still mess it up. How? What's up with that? I would argue, and I would put before you this morning, that our failure to be obedient to this command stems from our inability or our lack of willingness even to truly empathize with others. To feel what others feel. One of the opportunities that Cheryl and I, along with Jim and Diana, had on our recent trip to Israel was one evening, last Sunday evening, a week ago today, we had the opportunity to, uh, after we were done touring that day, uh, to travel with a group of people back into Bethlehem, um, which we had been at earlier in the week. And by the way, I didn't even know this. I, I knew that Jerusalem and Bethlehem were close, but Bethlehem is is in the West Bank, which is a, um, under Palestinian rule, ruled by the Palestinian Authority. It's one of the, the settlements that the Palestinians have to stay in in that area. They can't go back and forth. Israelis aren't supposed to be in, in that part. Palestinians aren't supposed to be in the rest of Israel. Um, Americans, we can just go back and forth. Um, so we were there going into that, and we had the opportunity while we were there, this is the point we went that night, which was to, to share a meal in the home of Uh, a Palestinian Christian family. Now, when I saw that on paper, it seemed, I was already a little struck, because growing up, when I heard the word Palestinian, I have have a firm picture in my head. This comes from growing up as a 90s kid. If you remember Yasser Arafat, remember that name, with the regular headdress that the Palestinians would have, that's what I think of when I think of Palestinian. And not only that, I, I religiously associate Palestinian with Muslim. And, and, and that's why I grew up. I didn't see there being any other option. I just assumed there were the Israelis and then there were the Palestinian Muslims. And anytime I hear about it in the news, that's what I thought. But our new friend that we had supper with, which is a great meal, probably the best meal that we ate while we were there, um, began to share about his faith, his faith in Christ. Talk, just quoting scripture, even though English wasn't his first language, just quoting scripture left and right. Uh, his, his kids go to Christian schools that are in the, under Palestinian control in that area in Bethlehem. He's the only one of the family that's able to go into Jerusalem, and it's only because he has a, a work card that says he gets to go. But he can't take his own vehicle because as a Palestinian, he can't drive anywhere in Israel. So he has to take a what would be probably a 30-minute commute if it, he could just drive. turns into a two-hour commute each way because he has to go through transport. And every time he has to go through transport, he has to go and get checked by security every time he goes back to Jerusalem and back from Jerusalem back into Bethlehem like we would go through airport security he has to do it every day on the way to work it was a Sunday afternoon so he hadn't worked that day but we got to hear about this 
And I just asked him, I said, hey man, every now and then, I, every now and then, once a week, I get the opportunity to share with people about things going on in the world, about what God lays on my heart in scripture. What would you have me tell them about you and your family? And he said to just let them know that there are Christians in Palestine, that we're here and we're not leaving. That the, the conflict between the Muslims and, and the Jews is not going to run us away. Uh, there's a big there's talking about out in the world about a big exodus of Christians leaving that area. And he says, we're not going to leave. And it wasn't just him. He, he said that he lived within like a half a mile, like, I don't know, a thousand family members. Like it's a giant family that they have in this area. And they've all been there forever and ever and ever. And, 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 and in that moment, I was finally, for the first time in my entire life, able to put a face to something I had only read about and heard about from American news agencies. And I was able to empathize and feel a little bit. He had four kids. Three of them were there. One of them was a little girl playing on his iPhone while we were sitting there. They had grape soda that they called grape juice that after we drank it, the kids came to get the rest and like drink it up. Um, it was just normal kids, normal people in a very different setting, very different rules, very different way of life, but also a very similar way of life. And empathizing in that moment is going to change the way I pray for sure. I don't know what else I can do. I think that's enough. It's a good start, prayer. But it certainly changed the way I see that. You see, empathy is hard work. Empathy a lot of times means changing your presuppositions about people. Empathy means doing things that are emotionally and spiritually difficult to identify with someone else. How do you empathize with someone going through a bout of depression without letting a little bit of that get on you? I'm going to be honest with you, and I'm going to tell you, I don't think there's a way to do that without getting some of that on you, without getting the pain of other people on you. I do have good news in that, is that you could take that pain to Christ. He is the ultimate empathizer. The cross is the ultimate symbol of empathy. It is because what he did on the cross that he is able to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Empathy is hard work, but it is a necessary ingredient to the golden rule. And so let me ask you, do you want to love like Jesus commands? Do you want to do for others as you want them to do for you? Let me give you some encouragement. Let me give you some homework. Study those you love. Spend time learning the habits of those you love. Spend time learning what they like, what food they like, what drink they like. Maybe you, you've been with someone for 60 years, and maybe you've, they've, they've changed, and you don't know who they are anymore, and you need to relearn them. There's always more to learn about people, the people that you love in your life. There's always more to learn about them. And so if you want to know how to love them, you need to know them first. Study those you love so you can determine how they desire to be loved. It's not as hard as you think. It starts with some questions, some conversations. This sermon is a part of a two-part series we're going to talk about next week. I haven't even told you yet. We're going to talk about the five love languages next week and how each person receives love in different ways. Break that down into five general categories. I'm going to give you some tools that you can take home where you can try to learn how you receive love and how the people in your life receive love so that you can do these things better. But I would encourage you, even beyond that, to take time to study those that you love. Empathy. Knowing where people come from. Empathy gives the golden rule a new texture. 
When I wrote that in my notes, I realized later that's kind of blasphemy. Jesus meant for it to have that texture all along. We just robbed it of our texture with our own selfishness in our world. We, we have turned the idea of doing for others what you would have them to do to you, that, well, you must like what I like. That's selfishness. In reality, what all of us want others to do, the people who we say we love, the people who, say love, who, who they say love us, we want them to get to know us from the inside out, to know what makes us tick, to know what we, what we need when we've had a hard day, to know how to celebrate when we've had a good one, to know what we're thinking in some cases when something's going on. You know when you have a really strong relationship, when you can watch a certain situation and you know what the other person's thinking. You know what I'm talking about, right? Like a weird cultural thing that I know exactly. You both start laughing because you're just, you know you're both thinking it. To know someone that deeply is what gives you the capacity to love them the way they want to be loved. It isn't that what we all want. Someone to study us and know us so that they can give us what we want what we need. It's what Jesus does for us, what he has done, even the things we don't know about ourselves, he knows, so that he can give us the one thing we really need, which is salvation through faith in him, by grace alone. So the encouragement, study those you love, those you say you love, study them, learn them, know them, so that you can love them the way Jesus commands, that you would do for them as you would want them to do for you. Because that sums up everything. During our time of invitation this morning, I want to encourage you to uh, allow God to speak to you during this time about particular relationships in your life. Your marriage, a relationship with kids, a sister, a brother, a friend, parent, whatever it might be, in which you know that maybe you've missed it. Maybe you haven't shown love the way that they, you know that they want to be loved. Pray for an opportunity. Thank God for the way that he loves you, the way that he loves us, and allow God to speak to you during this time of invitation. If you need to pray about this or anything else, anything from uh, joining our church to a prayer request that has nothing to do at all with this sermon, I'll be down here to pray with you during the end of our service, during our invitation. I'll also be around after the service is over and we can pray then. But let's stand together. Our band is going to come back up after I pray. They will lead us in worship. Like I said, I'll be down here to pray with you. You can always pray where you're at. Just do whatever God is calling you to during that time of worship. Let's pray together. Father, once again, we thank you for today. God, we thank you for your son being present through your Holy Spirit. God, we thank you for loving us in a way that we do not deserve. God, I pray that you would help us to love each other in that same way. God, help us to learn each other, to know each other, and to do for others as we would have them do for us. And God, may we take that even further. And God, may our heart's desire be to do to others what you would do for them. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.